There is perhaps no single issue surrounding the affordability crisis in this country that is quite as crucial or as controversial as housing. For an increasing number of Canadians, the idea of owning a home is seemingly out of reach and the rents they pay because of it continue to increase. Now, there are lots of opinions out there about how that can be fixed. You just need to work harder, some say, save more. And that dream of attaining the property ladder, of taking that step onto the property ladder can come true. But the reality for many is that getting on that housing ladder now is far more prohibitive uh, than it was in the past. And the single biggest issue in this country, in some senses, has been that huge spike in the value of real estate. And it has, in fact, benefited those who bought it at a different time when housing was, in fact, relatively more affordable. Never cheap, never easy, but more affordable. And they've earned handsome profits on their real estate investments without much in the way of effort. In fact, all you have to do is sit there and watch the value of your property grow. I'm one of those people, having bought back in 2007, 2008. But it's not sustainable. Can we continue to have a situation where timing determines the haves and the have-nots when it comes to having a roof over your head? with a sizable dash of how much one can rely on family money to overcome those obstacles. There are lots of ideas out there about what to do. My next guest has one of them. Joining me now is Paul Kershaw. He's a professor at UBC School of Population and Public Health. He's founder of Generation Squeeze and author of an article in the latest edition of McLean's magazine called Canada's Housing Crisis is Getting Worse. Taxing million-dollar homeowners can help. So what's he talking about? He's joining us now to tell us. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure to join the show. So explain this idea to me, because it does, it does. when you read through the article, it makes a perfect amount of sense. But this would be a tax, a tax, a surtax, really, on all homes worth more than a million dollars. Yeah, well, let's just end the article there. You just said it makes perfect amount of sense. I think we've, you know, that's all we need to hear. And uh, we've won the day. I know, I, I jest. So the idea is that about 10 to 12% of Canadians are uh, amongst the 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 group of residents of this country living the most affluent principal residences. In other words, only 10 to 12% of us live in homes above a million bucks. Full disclosure, that includes me out in Metro Vancouver. And many of us who live in those homes have actually seen our home value rise to that level after having bought it some time ago. So we bought it when it was more affordable. We have seen skyrocketing home prices. We have created in Canada a, a dialogue about how rising home prices are harmful when it comes to housing affordability. And we're working hard to try and address that. But we haven't flipped the conversation on its head and also said, but wait a sec, rising home prices aren't uniformly harmful for those who are already in the housing system. It's making them wealthier. People like me are getting more equity. And if something that's harming others is making people like me better off, more wealthy, more financially secure, might we not ask that constituency, especially benefiting those in the you know the minority in these million dollar plus homes from coast to coast to contribute slightly more, to do two things. On the one hand, try and use our tax policy right now. We should talk about it more, how it's currently incentivizing people to bank on high and rising home prices for their savings down the road. It's incentivizing us to treat housing as a, as a commodity and investment strategy rather than just a place to call home. And in the process of trying to deter that, that cultural attitude about housing, how can we also then raise some revenue to invest in some deeply affordable purpose-built rental, cooperative housing that would be in reach for what locals are actually earning, especially those who are starting out in the housing market, because they're the ones so damaged by rising home prices that lock them out of ownership, make them compete for scarce rental, that drives rent up, and it's just so challenging for their financial situation, making hard work, not pay off like it used to. 
Yeah, I mean, you've talked about something, a timing lottery, literally, if you were if you were lucky enough to buy when it was more affordable than it is now, and let's not make any mistake about that, it is much harder now to save up for, an, for a home to get on the property ladder, so to speak, than it was back when, um, that a lot of younger people these days are left holding lottery tickets, and they know their number will never come up. So this is sort of an idea of equity, of sharing the winnings to some extent. Uh, how would it work for the homeowners? Because I gather by looking through your idea, it's actually not that uh, prohibitive. It's not that uh, you're not asking that much of, of homeowners in this country who have won this timing lottery. Exactly. So we're talking about a modest surtax only on the value of homes above $1 million. So if you reside in a home right now that is valued less than a million dollars by your provincial property tax evaluator, you would not be subject to this tax. On the value of between one and one and a half million, we pay 0.2%. So for example, if your home is worth $1.1 million, the extra tax would be $200 a year. Let me say that again, just 200 bucks a year. And you could defer it if you wanted to until the sale of your home. Add the value of the tax goes up there after there's a progressive rate. So when you get to 1.8 million, it's 2,500 bucks, 2 million, 3,500 bucks. But at the level of 2 million, we're talking about just like 2% of Canadian households, like the very, very elite of household wealth in terms of your principal residence. And if you think about like a middle earner these days, makes around 60-ish grand if you're doing full-time work, uh, and you're going to be paying at least 10000 in in federal and provincial income taxes as a middle earner. And we're talking about someone in like the top 1% to 2% of households paying, you know, 3500 uh, as a as a surtax in terms of their housing wealth and trying to put a price on housing and equity. I think that's a, a useful comparison for your listeners to consider. And what would you do? And this is always the uh, the billion dollar question in this case. What what happens to the money? How does it get spent? Because there's always suspicion, of course, when you start to pay taxes, where exactly is the money going to be spent wisely? And will it be spent on what it should be spent on? Yeah, this is such a great question. So on the yeah, the first answer is that because we're talking about taxing housing wealth more, it would make sense to say that, oh, housing wealth inequality is causing unaffordability for others not yet in the market, those who are renters, so it's hurting young people, in particular newcomers of any age. And so we've estimated that the revenue that we're talking about raising, about $5 billion a year, could go directly to... Uh, uh, building 90,000 new units of cooperative and purpose-built rental housing and um, rejuvenating 60,000 low-income uh, low uh, rental units now and ensuring that they're perpetually affordable going forward. So in other words, 150,000 deeply affordable units and do that in one election cycle and have resources thereafter year over year to keep investing in affordable housing uh, to restore the stock of that supply. And at the same time, though, I do want people to know that this is something that is disproportionately going to impact those who've been in the housing market for some time. And that's going to mean in particular a baby boom generation. That is sort of in terms of the lottery of timing, housing was so much more affordable for regular folks back in the day um, when baby boomers were young adults. And then over their lives, when they got in as waitresses and bus drivers, uh, often in cities like Vancouver and Toronto and elsewhere in the country, they've seen their assets become so much more valuable and, and turn many of them into like the global 1%. You only need like a million dollars or so in assets to be part of the global 1%. Housing has really done that for a bunch of regular folks. And 
insofar as that aging population right now is having concerns about, are we accessing enough medical care? Is there enough extended long-term care available? I could imagine actually this being a great way to ensure that our aging population knows it wants more of this healthcare service and extended long-term care service, and they haven't yet paid for it, that actually their housing wealth and a taxation of those who've been especially fortunate that could ensure we could create that for that demographic and ensure we don't leave the bills for their kids and grandchildren. And this would have, I imagine, just because of where those million-dollar homes tend to be, this would have a disproportionate effect in certain parts of the country. Would this be handled by provinces? For instance, would BC handle BC or Vancouver handle Vancouver? Is that how it would work? No, it wouldn't happen at the regional level. That's going to create a range of inefficiencies uh, so that we would discourage that. In all honesty, constitutionally, this is a place in which the federal government could ensure a national reach. Uh, If they were to follow our recommendation, have this modest surtax kicking in at home value above a million dollars and the the early surtax so low. Remember, I said at 1.1 million, a tax of 200 bucks. And almost no homes in Atlantic Canada and Saskatchewan and Manitoba would be subject to it. Um, Yes, there are going to be more homes in BC and Ontario in particular that are subject to it, but that's the entire point, because these are the places that have most lost control of home prices. And for those who are actually now amongst that rare group of people living in million dollars, this isn't the norm. We have to think it's the norm when you're in Vancouver and in Toronto, but it's not. It's just about 10, 12 percent of Canadian households. It actually is a signal of affluence. And we're we're really in one part wanting to raise revenue to address you know, to invest in deeply affordable housing, raise revenue for important social benefits. But we also think this public policy we're proposing, this switched, this adaptation to tax policy, can help us have a conversation in Canada about who's affluent. So many people are writing to me, but, you know, a, a $1 million home in Waterloo, that'll buy you a starter house with three bedrooms. That's not rich. And I respond to this person and, and she's like, you know, That starter home with three bedrooms in Waterloo, for many a young person now starting it as like a luxury that they don't think is in reach. And when it was in reach in earlier years, and for those who bought it, the fact that it is now worth a million dollars has made them more affluent. It is transforming class dynamics. Let me give you one concrete example. And I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to ask your listeners to, to ponder it. We've been polling people, trying to get a sense of like, who's rich, who isn't. So imagine a senior with a a low income around 22,000, that's actually around the poverty line, but they live in a home that they own outright worth a million bucks. Are they poor or are they rich? Or take a young person, mid thirties, a lawyer, you know, they become a partner, they're making 200 plus grand in earnings, that puts in the top few percent of the country, but they're a renter in a big city and they are struggling to find uh, a rental home that has enough bedrooms for their two kids. Are they rich? Are they poor? And we need to really be wrestling with how access to home ownership and the security of tenure that it gives people is such a uh, a big factor now in determining sort of affluence. And we, in the past, like a middle-class expectation could have been that security of housing, but today it is not in reach, even sometimes for higher earners, let alone middle earners, let alone working poor, et cetera. My guest this half hour is Paul Kershaw. He's a professor at UBC School of Population and Public Health. He's just written an article in McLean's magazine called Canada's Housing Crisis is Getting Worse. Taxing million-dollar home owners can help. We're discussing that idea. When we come back, uh, you mentioned election cycles, and I wanted to bring that up as well. Uh, politically, how viable would this be? Can it be? Will politicians listen? Taxes are always uh, an unpopular thing when it comes to politics. We'll get to that after this.
We're speaking with Paul Kershaw. He's a professor at UBC School of Population and Public Health, founder of Generation Squeeze. He's just written an article in uh, the latest edition of McLean's magazine called Canada's Housing Crisis is Getting Worse. Taxing million-dollar homeowners can help. He's been explaining exactly how that would work. Uh, you mentioned election cycles earlier, uh, not in the same context. Um, but this, this, these are always tough sells uh, to politicians taxes of this sort because of course uh, people who own million dollar million dollar homes in this country vote right so mm-hmm. uh, how do you convince policymakers that this is fundamentally a wise move well, i think there's two parts to that answer there's engaging policymakers and elected officials in particular to let them know actually that they need not be as nervous as they often communicate they are about the idea in the world of politics, because there's actually more of a groundswell of support from coast to coast to coast for this kind of thinking than I think most of us recognize. And the second, though, is to say any nervousness that a politician expresses does reflect a broader cultural dynamic. And I do want to lament on your show, and I lament it in a range of places now, that Canadians are risking being a country of residents who want more stuff, more medical care, more affordable housing, more child care, um, et cetera. But then the moment we talk about how we're going to pay, we're like, no, no, don't die, don't raise taxes. We cannot be a country that wants more but doesn't want to pay for it because that is an intergenerational unfairness at its most obvious where we just simply leave the bills for those who follow. So I founded Gen Squeeze to be a force for generational fairness. Check us out at gensqueeze.ca. Check out our Hard Truths podcast as well because we can't be uh, tolerating intergenerational inequity just as we can't be tolerating racism, classism, sexism. Intergenerational unfairness is another ism or systemic problem. And it's at the heart of our taxation. But To your question, what do politicians think? There have been a range of knee-jerk reactions from all, you know, whether it's the NDP in BC, the Conservatives in Ontario, the Liberals in Ottawa. I just did all three parties. Yay, I'm not partisan. And they're nervous about it. But we've done some public opinion polling that increasingly we're going to be able to showcase that for this uh, particular idea, over 60% of Canadians support the idea of having a surtax on homes over a million dollars. Uh, it's particularly high in Atlantic Canada and in the prairies where there are actually fewer million dollar homes. So it's over a majority, even in BC and Ontario. You can win elections with those numbers. And what's especially interesting, I think, is actually support is really high amongst people who self-identify as living in million dollar homes. When you say, hey, let's put a surtax on the top 10% of uh, households in terms of the value of their principal residence, a large majority in the 70% range, if I recall correctly, of people in million dollar homes say, yeah, that's a good idea. But the moment you tell them, oh, by the way, you are in that top 10% if you're in living, you own a home that's over a million bucks, they're like, oh, I didn't think you meant me. And that's the rub. We have a range of people, I think, at this stage, we need to have a hard conversation about who's affluent and who isn't. This takes us to the same combo before your break. And I think we can reach into the hearts and minds of more Canadians and say, ah, asking a modest amount more from people who are in million-dollar home and recognizing that that is relatively rare in Canada can be a big part of the solution. Because it feels as if, and you'd created Generation Squeeze a while back, uh, Generation Squeeze continues to get squeezed, and one wonders uh, how tenable a situation it is. For that younger demographic, how tenable? The, the, The summary is, 
you know, those in their 20s, 30s, even early 40s, they've gone to post-secondary more, paid more for the privilege to land jobs that pay less after adjusting for inflation. They less often have extended health coverage and pensions from their jobs. They then face a housing market where average home prices have gone up hundreds of thousands of dollars. They have to, they're priced out of ownership for longer so they compete for more rent. Their rents are on the rise. So they are financially pinched at the moment they need to start their families. And that squeeze, that vice grip grows tighter and tighter because childcare has cost another rent or mortgage size payment. I'm delighted that the $10 a day idea for a national child care program that Jen Squeeze branded over a decade ago has finally been adopted by the federal government. And so we are making historic investments that, you know, that we haven't seen in a generation to ensure that child care never does cost another mortgage size payment in the future. That's great. Uh, but still, this is the, the financial squeeze younger Canadians find themselves in. And then it's tightened still further by the fact that they inherit larger government deficits and environmental deficits uh, than in the past. And that is just a lousy legacy to be leaving to younger and future generations. And I, I talk about this with my baby boomer and slightly older parents and family members, and, and I've had enough time with them now that I'm getting them nervous about the legacy that they're leaving. It's not the legacy they want to leave for their kids and grandkids. And that's why something like this modest surtax on housing inequity, this, this price on housing inequity, just like a price on pollution is going to be so important to the legacy of the baby boom generation because we are at a moment where as a society over the lives of baby boomers we've consumed more the atmosphere's scarce capacity to absorb carbon pollution than we are leaving behind there's so much so little of it left for younger people we've absorbed more the housing system's ability to produce wealth and left so much less affordability in our footsteps and we need to get on fixing that now because history books will not write well about the legacy that is at risk of being left in the current context. Paul Kershaw, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. You can read Kershaw's piece in the August edition of McLean's on newsstands now. Look for a cover story about how BC is learning to live with relentless wildfires. And you can always visit mcleans.ca for daily updates about what you need to know. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.